I hope you can join us for that. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Happy October. I broke out a sport coat today to deal with these cool fall temperatures. I need to download a weather app. My uh, trick knee isn't doing, the, doing me justice when it comes to telling the weather, apparently. Uh, friends, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. It's October 1st. We want to, everybody stand up, give a round of applause for <laughs> All right, sit down, sit down. I just, I need you to know I didn't plan that when I make you stand up again in four minutes, all right? You're like, what is going on, calisthenics? That's all right. What's our sermon series called? Right, Kingdom Logic. We're in the middle of a series in which we're looking at Mark chapter 9 and 10 that has one lesson, one lesson after another that is about the kingdom of God. And we want to know these lessons about the kingdom of God. And in week one, we saw the most important lesson that there is about the kingdom of God. What is that lesson? That Jesus is the king of the kingdom. That is the most important lesson. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And because Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God, it is totally different than the way of the world. That is meant to be represented by the artwork that is up on the screen with one city upside down from another. The way of the kingdom is completely upside down from the way of the world. And the way of the world is completely upside down from the way of the kingdom. And so we recognize the last couple of weeks as we have been walking through different passages that the way of the world, its way of thinking, its way of acting, completely different than kingdom logic. The kingdom way of thinking and the kingdom way of acting. And today we are going to see the vast difference that there is between the world and the kingdom when it comes to the subjects of marriage and divorce. It is a, a vast difference between what God calls his people to in the era of marriage and divorce and the way of the world. And I just want to say, uh, before we get into this very far, this is a really hard message to give. Not because Jesus is unclear in what he says, but because I know that there are people in so many different situations here this morning who need different things. There are people here this morning who have unconfessed and unrepentant sin in their life, and what they need is the firm conviction of Jesus this morning. And there are people in here who have dealt with sin in their past. They have confessed it. They have turned from it. What they need this morning as those sins pop into their head is not to feel shame, but to recognize the great grace of our God that has been at work in their life. And there are those in here who have been hurt by the sin of others. And what they need to hear this morning is that Jesus calls those things wrong that hurt them. And then they need big hugs from their fellow congregation members. And all of us need a better understanding of what Jesus as the king calls us to when it comes to marriage within the kingdom. And so with that in mind, I just want to ask you to focus your minds on a couple of things as we make our way through Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 today. First, recognize this is the word of God. That the Holy Spirit has inspired these words and what they say is what we believe to be true and what we want to obey in our lives. And so if there is any way that we see that our lives don't match up with the king's call today, we want this to be a day of confession and repentance in our life. But I also want us to recognize the great grace and mercy of God that we've just been singing about. And if we have sin in our past that we have confessed, that we have turned from, I want us to recognize the great grace and mercy of God that is not only available, but says that if you have confessed, it has cleansed you, wiped away entirely all of that sin. With that in mind, let's look at Jesus' teaching about what marriage and divorce looks like in the kingdom. And here, I'm going to read this passage to you, but I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the word. And as you stand and listen to these words, I'd ask you to listen carefully 
and prayerfully to what Jesus teaches. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him. And they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's an awkward place to end, but that's where we're ending. You may be seated. A group of Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him about divorce, but this is not an innocent question about divorce. We're told it's a what? It's a trap. There are two schools of rabbinic thought that governed ideas about divorce within the Jewish community at this time. One was the school of Shammai that taught that divorce was only permissible in the case of sexual infidelity. The other was the school of Hillel that had a more liberal understanding of divorce, and it taught that divorce was permissible any time a wife no longer pleased her husband. And so the rabbis brought this particular understanding to Jesus and asked, which side do you come down on Jesus? Are you of the the school of Hillel or are you of the school of Shammai? Knowing that whichever one he picks, he is going to offend the adherence of the other. Jesus, of course, as the one who created marriage, is not going to put himself into a human thought school here about divorce. He's instead going to go back to the very book of Genesis and his own understanding, his own creation purposes when it comes to divorce. He asked the Pharisees, who are experts in what? The Old Testament law. He asked the Pharisees, what what did Moses say about this? And what do the Pharisees respond? They respond from a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Just a little snippet of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That phrase, some indecency in her, is what the different schools argued about. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house, dot, dot, dot. Right? You can tell that the idea is not done here. And if you continue to read throughout the rest of Deuteronomy 24, what you discover is that there is the possibility of a writ of divorce which allows for that wife to now have some legal standing so that her ex-husband does not take advantage of her or treat her like property within a society in which women were very vulnerable. It, It allowed some rights here. Now the Pharisees had, for the most part, a liberal understanding of when divorce was allowed. Most of them were of the school of Hillel. And so they bought into the school of Hillel teaching that if your wife burned your meals too often, you could get a divorce. If your wife said mean things about your parents, you could get a divorce. Right? These are actual examples of the rabbinic teaching. And they would point to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, as their proof text that God was on board with all of this divorce. See, he says we can issue a certificate. He must be on board with all of this divorce. And what Jesus wants them to understand in the passage that we read is, this is a complete misunderstanding of Deuteronomy chapter 24. God is not saying in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that he is on board with all of your divorce. Instead, Deuteronomy 24, according to Jesus, is a concession to human sin and brokenness. Jesus says it is because you are are so sinful as people, so broken, 
You create such thorough messes in relationships that I know that there is going to be separations among marriage, and so how should you therefore handle it? I am going to give you this rule in Deuteronomy 24 to protect you from further damaging each other, and particularly the woman in this situation, within this framework of divorce and being permanently separated. Jesus says, you, you guys are misunderstanding. Deuteronomy 24 isn't God saying, yeah, I'm on my board with all of your divorce. Deuteronomy 24 is saying, you guys are a mess and a disaster, so you divorce each other. Here is a way for there to be further protections within that as you go through that process. Jesus then continues on, not by affirming one of the houses of rabbinic thought within Israel, but instead by returning to the book of Genesis and his original creation purposes for marriage. Why he made it and what it's like. Just a quick glance at that passage that we read helps us to see that the way of the king when it comes to marriage and divorce is very different than the way of the world when it comes to marriage and divorce. And so let's take a few minutes and unpack that. Let's take a few minutes and unpack how different the king's understanding of what marriage should look like in the kingdom is from the world's understanding and how different the king's understanding of divorce is than the world's understanding. Let's start with marriage. What does Jesus teach us should be true of marriage in the kingdom in this passage? First, that marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred. The world does not understand marriage to be sacred. A couple of weeks ago when uh, Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner announced they were getting divorced, the primary reaction from the media was not, oh, they are damaging this sacred relationship made before the Lord. That was not the primary reaction. The primary reaction from people was, oh, that's too bad, I like them as a couple. Or, oh, that's good, I never liked them as a couple. I always thought she deserved a better Jonas brother. Right? What, whatever the situation... The world does not treat marriage as sacred. When people heard about that divorce and so many others, they did not the grieve the fracturing of the covenant of God, a holy covenant, when their marriage ended. The world doesn't see marriage as sacred, reverent, holy, but the king does. Jesus teaches in this passage that marriage is God's creation. And that when people are married, God is the one who joins them together. God joins us together. It is a sacred binding under and with God that a husband and a wife enter into. So that when my wife and I took vows of marriage, my wife's primary commitment on that day and every day since wasn't to me. Yes, she made commitments to me, but her primary commitment that she made that day and every day since was her covenant with God in relationship to our marriage, right? The primary commitment that I made that day and every day since isn't to her. Yes, I've made commitments to her, but the primary commitment I've made is the covenant that I have made with God as it relates to marriage, because this is a sacred and holy endeavor that we are entering into. We make a mistake if our primary way of thinking about compatibility in marriage is about whether or not we have similar personalities. Right? We're going to take a personality inventory and we're going to see if our personalities are similar and then we're compatible. Or if they're not similar, then we're not compatible. Oh, you guys. If the health of a marriage was dependent upon having similar personalities, my wife and I would be in so much trouble. We are hyper different in terms of our personalities. But compatibility isn't about whether or not we have similar personalities. It's about whether or not we have the same devotion to the sacred foundation. It is about whether or not we have the same devotion to God and pursuing relationship with God together. That is where compatibility is found because marriage is sacred, reverent. Holy. The second thing we see in Jesus' teaching uh, that is starkly different from the world is this, 
Marriage is for a man and a woman. Jesus says God makes people male and female. We have talked before about the modern movement to self-identify as male, female, or one of 74 other possible genders. That is a Garden of Eden-style attack on the authority of God. Right? The primary sin that took place in the garden was they no longer wanted to understand things God's way. They wanted to determine what was good and evil for themselves. They said, we want to be self-determining. We want to identify things our way. And that sin from the garden plays out as people say, I don't accept what you say things are, God. I want to say what things are for myself. God made us male and female. And he made marriage for one of each, one man and one woman, for a very distinct purpose. If you are married, the God-ordained purpose of your marriage is that as a man and woman living in loving relationship with each other, you would reflect the gospel reality of Christ and his church. That is the God-ordained purpose for your marriage, that you as husband and wife would reflect the, 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 the relationship of God to his bride. That's why Ephesians 5, God says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He says, Husbands, you are called in order to live your lives, to give yourself, to, to die to self for the sake of your wife, as Christ did for the church. You are to reflect Christ in this relationship. In Ephesians 5, God says to wives, Submit to your husbands and look to what is best for them and care for them, because you are to reflect the church in this relationship. Husbands and wives reflecting the way, of the, the way of Christ and the way of the church. This is why Paul ends his teaching in that chapter with these words. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All this stuff I've been teaching about marriage, it's actually about Christ and the church because the purpose of marriage, your God-ordained purpose in your marriage is that you would reflect the relationship between Christ and the church come together. God's purpose for marriage is not that Christ's relationship with Christ would be reflected or that the church's relationship with the church would be reflected. God has said, no, one of each different man and woman to reflect the different Christ and church that come together in relationship. And so God's ordained purpose for marriage has to be about it being a man and a woman in that relationship to properly reflect that gospel reality of Christ and the church. The third thing we see from Jesus about marriage in the kingdom is this. Marriage is for life. We live in a world where ending marriages in divorce happens frequently. Most states don't even make you provide a good justification for why you want to get a divorce. You just can, and we end marriages at a rate of 7,000 a day in this country. Divorce is often celebrated. I saw an advertisement this week for a divorce ring that you could buy. And the ad said you can wear it every day as a celebration of your freedom. A kingdom understanding of marriage doesn't look at marriage as disposable. It doesn't think about there being starter marriages or getting rid of a spouse so I might see what else is out there. A kingdom understanding of marriage is that God designed marriage to reflect the gospel relationship between Christ and his church. And does that relationship end? Right? The gospel relationship between Christ and his church is a lifelong relationship. When Christ chooses his bride, he doesn't a few years later say, eh, no, I guess not. No, what, the good work that he starts, he carries that out to completion, doesn't he? If you belong to Christ and are his bride, is there anything that can separate you from the love of Christ? I'm familiar with a scripture about that. And so we also recognize 
that passages like Revelation chapter 2 and 3 teach us that those who are genuinely the bride of Christ are those who persevere for a lifetime in that relationship. Because the Christ and his bride relationship is one that goes on forever. It is for a lifetime. And so it is to be reflected in marriage that is for a lifetime. Marriage is to be for life. What is it that Christ teaches us about marriage? Marriage is sacred, holy, reverent. Marriage is for a man and a woman. They reflect Christ and the church. Marriage is for life. It reflects Christ and the church and the ongoing nature of that relationship. But, but there are times when a marriage designed to be for life ends before that in divorce. And so Jesus also wants us to understand the kingdom perspective about divorce as well. And as we read the passage, it seems like we could summarize the king's perspective about divorce as being the anti-Nike position. Right? What is Nike's slogan? Just do it. And what is Jesus teaching about divorce here? Just don't do it. Fundamental teaching that Jesus has for us about divorce. Just don't do it. God has joined this together. We have no business separating it. And if we do separate it and choose to marry another, Jesus says that is adultery because that first marriage shouldn't have come to an end. Jesus says, don't do it. Now at this point, some of you may be saying, maybe even begging, Matt, aren't there some permissions for divorce somewhere in the New Testament? I heard that. I read them somewhere. I heard there's some sort of permissions for divorce that might be applicable in the kingdom. The answer to that question, I believe, is yes. The Bible does say divorce is permitted, never required, but permitted in some situations. But before we get to those biblical reasons that a divorce could be permitted, I want to deal with the reasons that the world gives for divorce that are always wrong and always damaging. All right, what are the primary reasons that I've heard over the years that the world gives for divorce that are always wrong in God's sight. Always wrong, always damaging. Well, well, here are three. First, we fell out of love. We fell out of love. The world communicates that love is primarily a feeling that sweeps over us against our control and then can just leave us against our control as well. We experience feelings of infatuation, which can be butterflies and excitement and everything else that Thumper says goes with being Twitter-pated. Then we get married and over time, those butterflies aren't there in the same way. Pretty soon, we roll over in the morning and instead of excitement, that's my wife, that's my husband, we go, oh yes, it's them again. <laughs> okay, maybe not that bad. For the person who understands love to be an independent third-party contractor that just comes in and acts upon us and leaves when it chooses, when those feelings leave, there is often then a sense of, uh-oh, love's gone. I'm pretty sure that life's supposed to be about love. I better go find this somewhere else. The person who divorces because the feelings of infatuation are gone don't recognize that God defines love in a completely different way than that. The Bible defines love as selfish, selfless, sacrificial giving towards another. Selfless, sacrificial giving towards another. God says a person can't fall out of love because love is about the intentional, volitional willingness to give of yourself for the good of another. Those who divorce because they fell out of love 
are dealing with the world's understanding of what love is rather than the king's understanding of what love is all about. And because of that, this is a wrong reason for divorce. This is a reason that always does damage. We fell out of love. The second reason that we hear, well, we weren't soulmates. I got a soulmate out there, and and this person just wasn't my soulmate. There are few ideas that that have done more damage to marriage than the idea of there being a soulmate. All right, what does the world mean when it uses this term soulmate? It means the one person in the world that can bring satisfaction to your soul. It's a recognition. There's something that isn't quite right. There's a dissatisfaction within me. And I need something in order to bring greater contentment, greater joy into my life. What is the answer? How can I experience that kind of happiness? The world answers by finding your soulmate. Copyright Jerry Maguire, who completes you? Sometimes we start indoctrinating kids in this idea of soulmate as early as two years old when we plop them down in front of old Disney movies, right, that all have the same general message, that if you are going to live happily ever after, then you need to find the prince or princess for which you were destined. You need to find that soulmate, and that is the only thing that can produce joy and contentment in your life. The Bible teaches us that there is a hole in our soul. And only one person can fill that hole and make us whole, W-H-O-L-E. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. It's only in relationship with him that we can have soul satisfaction and contentment the way that we were designed. Well, but I've been taught since I was a kid that real happiness ever after is about finding that one person that I was destined for. Maybe if I nag the person that I married enough, maybe if I yell at them enough, maybe if I shoot enough sarcastic barbs in their direction, they'll change enough that they'll become that perfect soulmate that I always envisioned. Right? Tell me how that works out. Ultimately, there is no one, no person, who can satisfy us if we are trying to shove them into the God-shaped hole that exists within our soul. And we will grow dissatisfied and begin to rip them apart because they are not doing the job that we've been promised a soulmate should do. And eventually, if we hang on to that idea of soulmate and what they should produce in our life, we will leave that person because they're not getting the job done and go try and find a soulmate somewhere else. This is the world's thinking and the world's understanding that leads to divorce. The third reason that we often hear from the world about why we get divorced is we just weren't happy anymore. I mean, we started out happy, but we just weren't happy anymore. This kind of approach sees the pursuit of happiness, happy circumstances, happy feelings, as the primary aim in life. And if the pursuit of happy feelings and happy circumstances is the primary aim in life, then it certainly should be of my marriage as well. God says, the king says, the primary pursuit of your life is holiness. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, Christ has saved you so that you will become like him, holy. The primary aim of our life is holiness. The king says holiness. The world says happy feelings and happy circumstances. Friends, what a difference it makes in how I see my spouse Which one of those is the primary aim in my life? Because if happy feelings is the primary aim and I recognize faults in my spouse, I'm just going to nitpick at them until they're gone. Because those things are damaging my happiness. If happiness is my ultimate desire, right? Like my, my ultimate desire is just happy feelings and my wife and I are different in ways, then my aim is just for her to become more like me. Because isn't everything just easier and happier if everyone is just like me? (laughs) If holiness is my primary aim in marriage, 
then her faults are an opportunity for me to grow in the grace and love of Christ as I handle them. If holiness is my primary aim, then the differences that we experience aren't opportunities for me to change her and make her more like myself. The differences there are in our personalities are blessed opportunities for God to use us in increased ways in ministry that we would never experience in his kingdom. They're blessed ways for me to grow in patience as I recognize she's a hand, I'm an eye. These are different parts of the body, not one better or worse than the other. We are to value each other and love those differences. Completely different perspectives if we're aiming at happy feelings or holiness in our lives. We just weren't happy anymore. This is the world's way of justifying divorce. Now, now there are more here, right? You can come up with more of the reasons the world gives for why a person might divorce. But we need to get back to that question that I asked a couple of minutes ago. And that question is, okay, recognizing the world's got some very bad reasons to divorce, within the kingdom, are there any permissions that the king gives for divorce? And again, I think the answer here, cautiously, I would say, is yes. And the first permission he gives is divorce for the sin of sexual unfaithfulness. In the parallel passage in Matthew, which I have up on the screen, you can see that in that passage, Matthew records an exception that Mark doesn't record. Now, we might ask, wait a minute, why didn't Mark record the exception that Jesus gave? And my answer to that question is, I have no idea. You're going to be shocked by this, but the gospel writers did not consult me as to how the Holy Spirit was going to lead one to cover some material and not others? Why did the Gospel of John not give us any information about this dialogue that took place? I don't know. I do know this. As we look at the Gospels, Mark is again and again a short summary. And Mark and Luke again and again provide longer greater understandings of what was actually said in these situations. Mark is constantly giving abbreviated versions. You want, you want to know why? I don't know why. Right? I'm guessing it has something to do with the audience that they were writing to. God designed it this way, but in Matthew's parallel passage, we read, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The word translated sexual immorality is a word that means to participate in sex outside of marriage. It can mean the person who has premarital sex. But when it is used of those who are in a marriage relationship, it talks about bringing a third party into the marriage through adultery. That is the idea here. Someone is having a sexual relationship outside of their marriage relationship. That's the adultery that's taking place. Marriage is about two people becoming one flesh in every way we can imagine. And that is seen in the physical relationship, right? That's why we refer to the sexual relationship as consummating a marriage. It is a picture, a view of that two becoming one that is meant to be in every way in a marriage relationship. And when a person brings a third person into that two-becoming-one relationship, it is a betrayal of God's covenant purposes. And God says, in that situation, divorce is permitted. Permitted. Not required. And I would say, not always beneficial. Christ's kingdom is about confession, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. I have known a handful of friends who have experienced adultery in their marriage. And the person who committed adultery came back and confessed what had gone on and with tears repented and turned away. And the person who had adultery committed against them forgave them. Difficult, I mean, it was difficult, challenging, 
painful, but there was constant and ongoing forgiveness as their marriage continued to grow and continued to blossom. And I would suggest to you, it is a beautiful picture today of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Matthew 18 teaches us? If a perfect and holy God can forgive me of my sins, is there any sin I can't forgive of my fellow sinners? And so, yes, it is permitted, but that doesn't mean that it is required, and it doesn't mean that it is always wise or beneficial. If you find yourself, however, in some cases, for, for reasons I, I can't get into today because of time, reconciliation isn't possible in these situations. And in that situation, right, Jesus says there is this permission given. I just want to say this. If you, if you find yourself in a place where you have one of these biblical permissions for divorce, I want to encourage you, seek counsel. Biblical wise counsel. You are in a difficult and emotional situation. You need to surround yourself with the most biblically wise people you have met in order to guide you in this situation. And you need to take your time in the midst of this challenging situation and prayerfully work your way through this. Prayerfully, prayerfully, prayerfully join in prayer with others about the challenge that you are facing. And if, the Lord forbid, you wind up in a situation where you get divorced, there needs to be an extended time of examination, counseling, and prayer that goes on. I have seen far too many people get divorced one month and have their profile out on eHarmony the next. There needs to be significant time for mourning the marriage that died. Yes, there may have been permission for divorce to take place, but still, what took place in that divorce was a tearing apart of what God united. There needs to be an appropriate mourning for that marriage that has died and preparing for what life looks like ahead. And, this might be the most unpopular thing I say all day, a prayerful, lengthy considering if through these circumstances, God is calling you to what 1 Corinthians 7 refers to as the preferred life, a life of lifelong singleness for the sake of better ministry. Right? After divorce, there has to be prayer about this. Consultation. The Bible permits divorce for the sin of sexual unfaithfulness, but I just would advise slow prayerful, filled with wise counsel all around you. Second, the king permits divorce in the kingdom for desertion by an unbelieving spouse. As Paul's writing the letter to Corinthians, there is a new situation that is going on that wasn't true in Jesus' day. As Jesus is talking about divorce, everyone that he is talking to is a Jew. They all worship Yahweh. They all worship him together in the synagogue on Saturday. They all go to the temple together. But by the time Paul writes, a new situation has blossomed in which believers in Jesus Christ now find themselves in homes married to pagans who will not follow after Jesus Christ. And so Paul needs to address that and what that's going to look like. He does so in 1 Corinthians 7. The first two verses are actually addressed that we're going to look at here, actually addressed to believers who are married to other believers. And he says, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. When Paul says, not I, but the Lord, he's not saying, I don't buy into this. Right? What Paul is saying here is, I am taking this teaching from Jesus. I am paraphrasing Jesus' teaching, even from Mark chapter 10. So he says, not I, but Jesus, because this is from Jesus and his words. He says the wife should not separate from her husband. Separation here is a word not, not for a short period of time, but for an intended lengthy or permanent separation. It's the same word that God uses when he says, what God has joined together, let man not separate, right? 
The idea isn't for six weeks separation for perspective. The idea here is, no, I'm leaving. This marriage is over. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Wives shouldn't end the marriage. Husbands shouldn't end the marriage. Now Paul moves into addressing those who are part of mixed homes where there's one follower of Jesus and one person who's a pagan who is not. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. When Paul says, I, not the Lord, he's not saying, God isn't with me on this. I'm off on my own here, people. No, when Paul says, I, not the Lord, he's saying, this isn't a quote from Jesus. This is the Spirit speaking through me in the same way that he has spoken through me in the rest of the letters to Corinth. And so here, Paul speaking, uh, not the words of Jesus directly, but what the Spirit has inspired, says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, there's our word again, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Marty, way over time this morning, so I cannot go into all that this passage says. But part of what Paul is saying is that if you are a believer living with an unbeliever and they're willing to live with you within that marriage, you should do so for the sake of the gospel and the light of Christ that will shine through you into that home to your spouse and your children. Now, this passage may be saying more than that, but it says at least that. Second, Paul says... If the unbeliever says, I'm out of here, you are not bound to that marriage any longer. You don't have to tie them down, kidnap them, drag them back so that you can live in marriage together. He says, no, we're about peace. I'm not asking you to, to beat someone into submission so that they will remain your spouse. Dear me, no. He says, if they walk out the door, let it be so. You are not enslaved. You are free to be divorced in this situation when they have abandoned you like this. It is permissible. God teaches us that divorce is permissible for these two reasons. Again, not required and often not even wise, but permissible in these situations. And I would contend that where divorce is permissible in the kingdom, remarriage is also permissible. When a person gets divorced for a permissible reason within the kingdom, that person is free then to remarry. Right? Jesus says, if you didn't get divorced for a reason that is permissible, don't remarry. That remarriage would be adultery. He says, but if you did get divorced for a reason that is permissible... Right, then remarriage is permissible. And I would say that for three reasons. First, the grammar of Matthew chapter 19 makes the exception clause, except for marital unfaithfulness, apply to both divorce and the marrying of another. Right, so in Matthew 19, that exception clause seems to apply to both the clause for divorce and the clause for marrying another communicating if you are divorced for permissible reasons, you can then be remarried. Second, all of the Jews of Jesus' day, no matter which house you were a part of, had the same understanding. Right? And that understanding was this. If you are divorced for a reason that is permissible. Now, we, we talked about the fact that they had different understandings of when divorce was permissible in those schools, those rabbinic schools, right? But if... Right? You are divorced for a permissible reason. All Jews understood that you could remarry in those situations. If Jesus was going to change that common Jewish understanding, he would have needed to be overt about it in this situation, which he was clearly not. 
And so he seems to be allowing them to continue to think what they already thought. Third, the phrase is not enslaved in 1 Corinthians 7.15 probably refers to the freedom to remarry. They are no longer bound, enslaved to the first marriage, and they now have freedom so that they can marry again. All right, what do we do with all of this? Right now you guys are like, Matt, you are talking forever up there. What are we going to do with all of this information about the king's understanding about marriage and divorce, about marriage and divorce in the kingdom? All right, let me give you four things. First, if you are one day going to get married, choose wisely. If you are one day going, you're not married now, but one day you think you might get married, friends, choose wisely. Choose based on Christ-like criteria. Are they Christ-like? I, I can't tell you how many times over the course of the last 25 years I've been in situations where someone has come into my office in order to unload all of the issues there are with their spouse without any sense of irony that you picked them. <laughs> this is your choice. You're responsible for that choice. And so if you are unmarried, let me try to clearly communicate to you. It's your choice. And you'll be held responsible for life, for that choice that you make. And so move slowly, move prayerfully, and by all means, when you choose a spouse, make sure it is based primarily, I might even say exclusively, on their Christ-like character. I have told my kids over and over again, so that their eyes would roll deep back into their heads when I would start to say it again. I would tell them, friends, I can't tell you how many counseling situations I have been in, and I can guarantee you are far better off unmarried than you are married to the wrong person. The, the world won't tell you that. The world will tell you, no, you got to find the right person in order to be, be happy. You better find them, find them, find them. no. I'm telling you, from the challenges that I have sat with, you are far better off unmarried than married to the wrong person. So choose wisely. Second, if you are married, pursue God together and his ideals for marriage. Let me just for a moment address my friends in the room who have been divorced and are now married to someone else. It is not God's design that you would now get divorced from this marriage. Right? God's design is not that we would multiply divorces here. God's design is that you would move forward in this marriage in the same way that all of us who are married are to move forward in this marriage, pursuing God with your spouse and his ideals for marriage. And friends, his ideals for marriage are far greater and far better than just don't get divorced. Right? We saw his ideals for marriage are live out the gospel relationship of Christ with his church. Have that kind of deep, loving relationship with each other that people can see the gospel in your marriage. That's God's design for us. We, we want to be a people who live that out. We do that by sharing the pursuit of God together. A couple of recent studies, one by Professor Shanti Feldman. She did a nationwide robust study about marriage and found that couples that attend church together are almost 50% less likely to get a divorce. Right? Same thing was seen in a study by the National Center for Health and Statistics. Couples who attend church together are almost 50% less likely to get a divorce. Why? Because at least for many of them, they're investing in relationship with God together. A far more telling study, I believe, are the statistics put out by David and Jan Stoop. They studied tens of thousands of couples over decades. And among the tens of thousands of couples that they studied, they found almost 1,500 who set aside regular times to pray together. 
among those almost 1,500 couples who regularly set aside time to pray together, they documented one divorce. One divorce among almost 1,500 people. Because the willingness to sit down and spend time praying together and going before the Lord together is the sacred seeking of God that knits our hearts together. And so God says, pursue me. Pursue my ideals for marriage. Third, if you're here this morning and there is sin in your past that has been confessed to the Lord, live in grace, not shame. Some of you are here this morning and as we're talking about these issues, you have sins from the past that are coming up in your mind. And in the midst of that, I want you to recognize those have been paid for. That if you have confessed those sins before the Lord, he says they are completely and entirely wiped away. And so I want you, as those sins flash up before your mind, not to focus on shame and that sin, but instead to focus on God's great grace and mercy that has been shown to you in that. How good he is. Finally, if we have sin in our life that needs to be dealt with, run to the cross and confess. If you have sins in your life related to marriage, related to adultery, related to sexual sin, sins in your life in how you have treated your spouse. Let me bring up one that doesn't come out of the text. If you have sin in your life this morning of judgment because you have been sitting there saying, I thank the Lord I am not like that one, then by all means let's come to the cross and confess together. Let's turn from that sin and confess the sins that we have before the Lord. Adultery, divorce, these are not unforgivable sins. Jesus can forgive anything that we bring before him, and so can his people. And so let us run before the cross together today. Let us run before the cross together by running to the table today represents Jesus' body and, and blood given for us, friends. And so I, I want to encourage you to continue to meditate on the mercy and grace of God poured out upon those who confess their sins before him. And when you're ready, as we sing this song of praise to Jesus for his great faithfulness in our lives, make your way to the tables, grab the bread and the cup, and return to your seats and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements in just a minute.